Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at capitalallocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, I interview Regan Bosman, a general partner at Lattice Capital an early-stage crypto fund that helps founders build defensible moats and new growth playbooks. Regan previously was the first employee at CoinList, a token marketplace that spun out of AngelList, where he was involved in 30 token launches. 
Our conversation covers Regan's early years as an entrepreneur, lessons learned from CoinList, and the launching of Lattice. We discuss Lattice's investment philosophy, sourcing, research process, and subsectors of focus. We dive into specific examples in DeFi and NFTs and discuss a few winners in the portfolio to date. We close with Lattice's competitive advantage, measures of success, and definitions of defensible moats as the crypto industry continues to evolve. Please enjoy my conversation with Regan Bosman from Lattice Capital. Regan, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Well, why don't we start, go into your background, and eventually we'll weave our way into how you got into the crypto world. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in New York City. I went to Harvard undergrad, studied history and economics, and I think there kind of had my first like inklings of entrepreneurship. Me and a buddy had this like small business kind of selling university merchandise for football games, which went well and, until we got shut down by the university trademark office. This was kind of like <laughs> a few years after Facebook had come out and like it definitely still was not cool to be into startups and, and entrepreneurship. Going to somewhere like Bain or McKinsey was cooler, but I knew a few people who'd sort of dropped out to start companies, and, and that just seemed really interesting. And so I was fortunate to get a job at Bridgewater as like a summer intern in college, was utterly miserable and, and really hated it, and it was pretty clear that wasn't for me. What aspect of it did you hate? Yeah, so probably most listeners of your podcast are kind of familiar with this famous Bridgewater culture of, of brutal honesty. I think, you know, for a bunch of like bright eyed, I was probably 19 or 20 at the time, students to go live in kind of an isolated environment. Bridgewater is in Westport, Connecticut. It's about an hour north of New York. There's not really many other young people around and all the interns live together in houses. And so it kind of felt like everyone was just trying to like embrace this as much as possible, right? And Lord of the Flies would probably be a dramatic analogy because we're living in nice houses near the beach and, and have catered lunch and stuff like that. But it was just like not a very fun environment. And I was pretty terrible at the job, to be honest. I wasn't very good. And I was told that and, and definitely I think was kind of one of the first like big, really clear failures I, I had in my life. And I like cried in the office. It, it was just like not... I don't know. So, some people thrive in that environment. It was definitely not for me. And I think also just coming into this pretty corporate office in the middle of Connecticut and, and just staring at a computer all day, it didn't seem very fun. So I was fortunate to have that experience and really realize what I did not want to do. And then another fortunate event was through a friend in college who met two guys who had dropped out of Harvard Business School to start this on-demand home services platform. It was then called HandyBook. They eventually rebranded to Handy, building an, an Uber-like platform for home services, especially home cleaning. And so I met them really early. I think the company was like eight people. They just raised a seed round and worked for them sort of as I finished up classes and then spent two years after college there. And I think when I left, the company had raised about $100 million and was maybe somewhere around 150 people and worked there as chief of staff, was fortunate to kind of work across a pretty wide swath of that business. And definitely a lot of startup cliches, like young people working late in a big loft and flat iron in New York, but really learned a ton. And, and that was kind of my first like foray into entrepreneurship and startups and venture. And so what did you do after the two years there? 
When I was there, we had to recruit a lot of workers to the platform, and I, I saw kind of a lot of the problems with that firsthand. We were using Craigslist, and this is kind of when all of these on-demand platforms had spun up and raised a lot of money. They were all kind of going after the same workers. I saw an opportunity to build a platform to sort of help those workers, like optimize their incomes, work across platforms, and really just try to make that experience better. And so I spent about six months trying to get this off the, I made this idea off the ground. I was working with an engineer I, I'd known from Handy. And I think I talked to like 90 venture capitalists. All of them said no. So towards the end of 15, this was going terribly. I had no money. I was pretty close to having to move back in with my parents. And then I needed a job. I think I used AngelList a bit to just like find investors and connect with them. And then I was looking for jobs on AngelList and they were hiring for this kind of role to be like an analyst on the deal team. And I think the idea of having just been rejected by so many venture capitalists, like the idea of going to work somewhere and, and actually maybe understanding what that world looked like a little bit more was really appealing. So I fortunately got the job, packed up all of my stuff, which wasn't very much. And I moved out to San Francisco about two weeks later. And then I spent about a year there. And, and that was kind of my winding journey into crypto started. We worked on a few crypto deals when I was there. It definitely wasn't really the core of what we did, but we ended up spinning out a business called Coinlist to sort of build a similar business around capital formation and crypto. And that was really how I, I started working in the space. I want to circle back a little bit. And so in the startup that you tried to create, talking to 90 VCs, what was it like for you, both as you reflect back on maybe why they all said no and what you learned from that? It sucked, to be honest. Like it was really, it, it was just hard. I think I've only been on the other side of the table in a post COVID world. So I don't know what it was like then, but you know, it was hey, yeah, why don't you come out to San Francisco and meet us, right? And I had like very little cash at the time. And so it's kind of like, all right, I'm just going to buy a plane ticket and crash on a friend's couch. And hopefully this like 30-minute coffee chat is worth me flying 2,500 miles. It was hard. I get why they said no, right? I was like a solo founder. I wasn't technical. I think the sentiment around this general market of on-demand services was also kind of declining. I also made a lot of tactical mistakes now, for example, you know, that, that I know now, like a lot of investors would say no and then like, oh, well, like, but you should talk to this person, right? And I think now I see it on the other side of the table. If, if someone passed on an investment and it sent it to me, I would say, why did you pass on this? And why are you sending it to me if you did? But if there is a book, I hadn't read it. And so I didn't know that at the time. But I do think it was a valuable experience. I mean, I think it gives me a lot of empathy now where I get to sit in an office all day and talk to people and it's not my livelihood on the line if if I say no. And so I, I certainly I think having a huge amount of respect for founders' time and recognizing that their jobs a lot harder than mine was definitely a valuable learning experience. So you're at AngelList and they spin off this coin list. So why don't you go into what coin list was? So this is like summer 2017. Angelus core business is around capital formation, right? They've kind of built this marketplace for capital going into early stage startups. They've built some pretty cool network effects where there's a lot of LPs on the platform. There's a lot of founders and then just a lot of things, whether it's like moving money around, signing documents, forming companies, cap tables, they've kind of productized a lot of this. Coinlist, the idea was really driven by Naval Ravikant, the founder of Angelist, who's been into crypto, I want to say since 2012 or 2013, for a long time. 
And 2017, the market was starting to heat up. There were some of these like ICOs, this idea that you could bootstrap capital for a new business through the sale of tokens was becoming a bigger and bigger thing. And I think there were actually pretty legitimate regulatory reasons as to why it did not make sense to do this in AngelList. The details are not very interesting, but essentially AngelList uses an exemption that a lot of venture capitalists do, which basically says your core business needs to be equity in private companies. And so it kind of had to be done, the crypto stuff had to be done through a different entity. There were also like pretty different business dynamics in primary offerings of tokens versus series seed, series A startups raising money, right? Generally, when I saw those financings done at AngelList, for example, people wanted it to be done very quietly. No one is like out there publicly raising the seed round. There's like private metrics. They don't want their competitors to know what valuation they raised at. And maybe a seed round has 10 to 20 investors. Crypto almost flipped this on its head where Filecoin, which was the biggest token sale of that era and was like the first one Coinless did, had, I want to say, two to 3,000 investors and everything was public, right? From like the technology to the token economics to like the valuation. And so it was just almost kind of flipping all of the fundraising assumptions that had existed in venture on its head. And so... Coinless really started as this AngelList-like business, basically building this platform around primary offerings of tokens where compliance, funding, all of this stuff was just kind of abstracted away so that teams could do it pretty quickly and, and then get back to work. And what did you see coming through the pipe as this first gets going, 2017? Yeah, so I would say it was maybe out of every 100 teams, two were pretty incredible. Filecoin, the Protocol Labs, which is like the parent company behind it, they already shifted IPFS, which was like this pretty impressive decentralized storage platform, really impressive team of technologists. And the vision for Filecoin was really quite meaningful. Then maybe there'd be another team like that. And then there would probably be another 98 teams that saw like the local Fox News story about the kid they went to high school with who raised $10 million in an ICO for a hotel chain or some like crazy token rewards platform for dentists and kind of like everything in crypto. It's a little bit of the Wild West. And so there were just a lot of people trying to make a quick buck. I was the first employee to jump over from AngelList to Coinless. And when I started, one of the first things I did was look through the sales funnel we had. We had this pretty bad type form on the website. And it was just like, hey, if you're interested in working with us on a token sale, give us some information. And I think when I started, like no one had literally no one had ever opened this. And when I opened it, there were about 2,000 inbound leads. And there were everything from like, we want to raise half a billion dollars to fund a hotel space to actually some kind of like, Web2 companies that hadn't really panned out that were kind of trying to like throw a Hail Mary and raise some kind of token. There was just all sorts of nonsense. Why don't you talk me through a little bit of the evolution of CoinList? Yeah. So when CoinList started, it really was kind of like AngelList for crypto. It was like, we're going to help you with your initial fundraising. And then that's kind of it. And so it looked very different from AngelList in that we did many fewer deals, but they tended to be much larger ones. Filecoin, for example, raised $250 million, where let's say the average round on AngelList was like a $500,000 seed round, but it really was a, a similar business. But since then, Coinless has evolved a, a lot. And the vision always was if you start with like the primary offering, you're kind of like upstream from everyone else. So for example, once you do the token sale, 
where are those tokens going to go? You're actually ahead of any other wallet. It's much easier for people to just receive tokens within CoinList. And then, well, what can you do with them? You can actually build a lot of financial services on top of that. You can provide native staking. You can allow people to lend their assets. From a trading perspective, before CoinList had their exchange, a common route would be you would invest, you would get your tokens in a third-party wallet, and then you would like take them to another venue like Coinbase to trade. But today, CoinList actually has a pretty large exchange and you can do all of these assets natively within it. So they've kind of built a, a pretty meaningful business around just financial services around crypto, but really starting with like this primary offering of tokens. So how long did you stay at CoinList before you decided to start Lattice? I was there for about three and a half years. And what was the impetus for launching a fund? I left CoinList in basically the beginning of 2021. I had been there for a long time. I'd learned a ton. But I, I think as CoinList business continued to scale, a lot of the problems we had, especially on the business side, were scaling problems rather than crypto native problems. So for example, you know, we're going from, let's say, 5,000 people participating in any token offering to 100,000. How do we like get our compliance process a lot more efficient to get them through that? And I really wanted to like go work on more crypto native problems. So I left. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I started consulting with a few projects on kind of growth and go to market strategy. Some of that was kind of token launch, like similar to what I've been doing. Some of it was more just broader business strategy. But what I saw was a lot of the introductions I got to companies I was working with came from their investors. And so it became more and more clear to me that all of the growth problems of Web3 are more and more important as like a lot of these kind of hard technical scalability problems got solved. And very few investors really seem to have this capacity to help teams with it. I think the second impetus was... I'd seen a lot of colleagues from AngelList like leave to start venture funds based on their specific experience. So Ryan Hoover, for example, who is the founder of Product Hunt is a good example. He'd spent a lot of time at the forefront of like consumer tech just running Product Hunt. And he ended up raising this fund called Weekend Fund, largely based on that experience. And it, it made sense, right? Like there's a lot of reasons why he should be a good consumer investor. But you haven't really seen that in crypto yet. Generally, investors fell in three camps. They came from venture, they came from finance, or they just gotten rich in crypto and were institutionalizing what they were doing. And there's good investors in, in all of those categories, but I worked on 30 token launches. And my co-founder, Mike, who I worked with at Coinless, had a similar experience. That's really relevant to companies. And there just weren't many investors with that background. And then I think the third thing is it hadn't really been obvious whether or not we were good investors. And I, I think the jury is actually still out on that, given how early the fund is. But some of the personal investments I made and Mike had made started to do well. And that kind of gave us the confidence to go out and raise the fund. And that includes really bets on things like OpenSea, Dune Analytics, where big venture funds came in and marked these up pretty meaningfully. And that kind of gave us the confidence to go out and, and try to institutionalize what we were doing. So when you looked at the landscape, you saw a lot of the activity and the tokens that were coming through. How did you decide what your philosophy would be? I think we look at things through a pretty classic venture lens, which is really that it's about people and tenacity more than anything else. That's not to say the token design, the market, what blockchain they're building on, all of these things matter. But I think for us, a lot of the successes I'd had personally, like I mentioned, OpenSea and, and Dune Analytics, where you know on paper, these are really good investments. 
No one cared about those companies for a long time. OpenSea was like not a breakout hit for at least two years after they raised a seed round. And my perspective is crypto has been really hot since we started the fund. I don't think that's going to last forever. These markets have historically looked like bubbles, and I, I think they'll continue to be. Although long term, I think the trajectory is going in the right direction. And so it's really founders who have the tenacity and grit to kind of build through multiple cycles. They're going to be the ones who build meaningful businesses. And so that's sort of been the driving criteria more than anything else. I'd love to go through a little bit of your investment process and maybe start with idea generation. I can only imagine that every message you get is some new project on wherever it's coming from, your email, LinkedIn, Twitter, and how do you start thinking about filtering through to where you want to focus? I don't think we, we did, it's definitely not rocket science. I think it's really just like pattern formation. Examples of things that immediately disqualify something for us. One, like a really short lockup period or something where like the team is going to have tokens liquid in three or six months. We are not traders. We want to underwrite these investments for a multi-year period. And so it's just not something we do. Teams without strong technical backgrounds, I think teams kind of building an incremental improvement. So maybe, okay, like we're building this lending platform that's like compound, but we do X and Y. And so it's like 20% more efficient. All of this software is open source. And so generally our view is kind of, okay, well, like if this actually is an improvement, compound could just do this. And then I think there are some categories that either we dislike because we think they're bad markets or just given our backgrounds, like they're probably not the most interesting to us. So for example, neither Mike nor I are traders. Very deep like trading infrastructure for institutional clients. It's just like a little bit outside of what gets us excited. I think in terms of idea generation, a lot of it has just been looking at what's worked in crypto and trying to just mentally expand that out to like what else could work. So I think a good example is, is Helium, which I mentioned earlier. It's more or less a decentralized mesh network, a 5G network, where they um, basically like manufacture these hotspots. Anyone can install it in their house, and it's, it's very like low bandwidth data. And so it's, it's generally like IoT devices that are consuming this. At a high level, essentially what they did, I think these guys started working on this in 2013 or 2014. They wanted to build this just like distributed network, where rather than installing these very expensive cellular towers, you could just have hotspots in people's homes and IoT devices could kind of leverage that data. But that, like every marketplace, had this cold start problem. You're not going to have any demand at the start because there's no supply. There is no network. So how do you get people to like actually install these things before there is latent demand? And they kind of pioneered this model where basically they have this native token called HNT, and they kind of subsidized growth of initial hotspot deployment with it. So if you bought a Helium hotspot in, I think, 2019, they started rolling them out. Probably not many people were actually using that data, but you were earning HNT just rewards from having it. And as the network grew, the price of HNT went up. And I think more or less people who kind of had those early hotspots were sitting on fifty dollars to $100,000 in HNT. And so you kind of really aligned the early supply side users with like the overall marketplace growth. To us, what's really foundational about that is this is kind of the first time a marketplace has been able to use equity. In this case, it's programmable equity. It's, it's a token to incentivize supply-side growth. And so I think there's a lot of marketplaces that haven't worked in a traditional paradigm that will here. 
And so we spent a lot of time digging into this and that got us really excited about it. And then we invested in a company called Demo that's doing this for automotive data, where they basically make this little dongle that you can plug into your car. It streams a lot of data out of that. And again, there's no demand for data for the 10 Priuses on day one. They have to like subsidize that supply side growth, but they've been executing really well and, and we think could be a big market. And we started to look at more and more companies with this model. What does the research process look like when you found something you think is interesting? I think it depends whether or not it's live or not. At the earliest stages, most of these things are, are not deployed on mainnet. There's not really any analytics. And so I think that really looks kind of like traditional venture. Let's look at this market, what's worked, what hasn't. Do we think these founders are exceptional? Let's back channel some of their early customers. Let's talk to like teams building this ecosystem who knows them. I, I think that really looks like traditional venture. On the other hand, if we're looking on something on the open market, then it's much more analytical and data-driven. Looking at what retention has been, where are earnings and like TVL going, what do comparable things trade out on the open markets, what are those multiples? And so for the call it 10 to 20% of investments we make where we're buying liquid assets, that looks a lot more analytical and, and research-driven. What are the, say, subsectors of the crypto world that you're trying to cover? I tend to kind of look at the market in four categories. There's DeFi, so like blockchain-based financial products. A good example of that is a decentralized money market like Compound, which probably, let's say, has a few billion dollars of Ethereum-based assets in it on a given day. There's NFTs in gaming, so that could include something like digital art being traded on a marketplace like OpenSea. That could include kind of a blockchain-based game like Axie Infinity. The third is like Web3 more broadly. And crypto has kind of become renamed as, as Web3, so this is like maybe a bit confusing. But I think just historically decentralized software. So DAOs, these like internet native organizations and companies would fit into that. Token-powered marketplaces, there's something like Helium, which is kind of used token incentives to bootstrap this 5G network, I would include in that. And then the fourth is just infrastructure that powers all of this. So that could be something like a company bringing real-world identity on chain. It could be people making it easier to stake assets, things like that. So I'd love to walk through each one, maybe through the lens of an example of something you're excited about or invested in, and just get into it a little bit. And we can start with DeFi. Absolutely. So DeFi is actually kind of one of the first things that got me really excited about crypto. Like I was pretty cynical about crypto for the first year, year and a half I worked in it. And definitely a cynicism that in retrospect cost me a lot of money. But I met two founders of this thing called Instadap. I want to say this was like early 2019. Two young guys in India, they were probably 19 or 20 at the time. And they basically just built a, a smart contract to kind of help people optimize their earnings in DeFi. But, you know, they shipped this in a few months and there were like 20 or $30 million flowing through these smart contracts. And I think to me, that was kind of one of the first illustrations of like, wow, these kids who have raised $0 have been able to ship a financial application in three months and there's 20 to $30 million that's flown through. And so that was kind of one of the first like, wow, moments of these globally accessible permissionless money markets. It's not just like an academic thing. This actually is, is pretty real. A portfolio company we have that's been doing really well is, is called Maple. And so Maple is basically an on-chain credit marketplace. 
They function on top of Ethereum. People can go in, they can deposit money into lending pools. Each pool is managed by a professional money manager. So right now, most of those are quant crypto funds. Block Tower is a prominent crypto fund that has their own pool. And then those money managers lend money out to institutional clients. So large crypto exchanges and trading firms like Alameda Research all borrow there. What's interesting you know, is one, anyone can kind of become a liquidity provider, lend money out on these platforms, right? So this sort of like fixed income asset class that's historically been challenging to access, anyone can deposit money into these pools. I think the, the second really interesting thing is Maple uses their native token, MPL, to kind of align all of the incentives in this ecosystem. So for example, these money managers who manage each pool, they actually have to buy MPL tokens and basically stake them as a default insurance in each pool, right? So they're kind of incentivized to take on the same risk that anyone in their pool is taking on. And then still a relatively nascent part of, of Maple's business, but I think an area a lot of people are excited about is permissioned DeFi, where essentially you have these on-chain pools, but for institutions, for example, who need to know the identity of all their counterparties, you could actually kind of build a system where every wallet in these pools is whitelisted. So they've gone through something like KYC or compliance. And a lot of people think this is an institutional unlock to allow more money to come into the space. And so Maple has a few of these sort of KYC pools and is, is kind of at the forefront of that. So in that story, we got a lot of rails for the financial side of crypto. Earlier on, you mentioned backing the founders. In telling that Maple story, you didn't say much about the founders. I'm curious how that plays in. I think they're, Joe and Sid are kind of exactly the founders we like to back. I'd actually done some consulting work for them after I left Coinlist and before we started the fund, and so I knew them well. But I think good examples of DeFi got really hot at some point in 2020, but they've been working on it for a long time before that, and it, it really wasn't cool. They came from fixed income backgrounds. They experienced these challenges firsthand. And so it wasn't, hey, this DeFi thing seems cool. Let's like see what we can build. It was really, you know, we have this relevant professional experience and we can build something better here. And then I'd say they also, I think a lot of DeFi has kind of been these like Ponzi games where, you know, you have these really high yields and this tends to be kind of what gets press attention. This wasn't that at all, right? Like they had hired institutional salespeople to bring large capital into the space. They'd kind of invested in like doing the hard things that we think are going to be meaningful over the long run. And they've done really well. Like it's been, it's been a slog. There's been a lot of hard things to execute on, but they've done all of them. And how do you measure the success of a project like Maple as it progresses to technology, to users, to hopefully eventually cash flow? Maple's interesting case study in that most of what we do out of our fund is like private deals. We invest in companies before there's a token, we sign a contract with them. And at some point down the line, they launch a token and we get it. But it's not like anyone could just do this. Maple is different in that they'd already launched the token by the time we raised the fund. And so Maple was never a counterparty to our investment. We just looked at on-chain metrics using something like Dune Analytics. And you could see AUM is slowly creeping up. You could see them kind of onboarding more of these pool managers. And so kind of the same way, like, you know, a stock analyst with just like quarterly reports on Ethereum, we could look at this in real time and just see that all of this was going up and to the right. 
And so we started buying NPL on the open market and, and we continued to do that until it was the largest position in our fund. But I, I think generally the core metrics that a lot of these DeFi protocols are judged on is people call it TVL, total value locked in smart contracts, which is more or less analogous to like AUM for a fintech. And then on-chain cash flows. So for example, in Maple, a certain percent of every interest payment is more or less like directed back to the treasury, which token holders control. Again, one of the really cool things about DeFi and crypto in general is anyone in the world can go on chain and look at these metrics and make decisions based on that. Well, let's turn to an example in the NFT and gaming world. Maybe we can talk about OpenSea, which is an investment I made personally before before Lattice, but it's sort of broken out as the largest NFT marketplace. It's more or less like eBay for NFTs, but what's obviously different about it is all of their smart contracts are open source and anyone can see them. And I think really where what they've done well and have executed is just really building a brand as kind of this trusted place to go to. And you also kind of see these marketplace effects that have existed in, in Web2, right? With things like eBay or something like Uber, liquidity begets liquidity and like they were just the largest marketplace before nfts blew up and then as they started to blow up towards the beginning of last year more and more liquidity flowed into there and it's i think now they have something like 80 percent market share what are some of the markets that you may have looked at or you think others see as similar potential but you don't see the potential for that kind of scaling a lot of DeFi has historically been in this kind of like degen narrative. A lot of the people early on in these DeFi products would chase really high yields. There were a lot of hacks. It was just kind of like almost like taking this Robin Hood mainstream market mania and just pushing it to an extreme. And a lot of people made a lot of bets there. A lot of them didn't work. A lot of these protocols lost money in hacks. But I think long term, just like the market for degens is not very big. There's not that many degens on earth. Robin Hood is like sexy in the mainstream media writes about it, the people holding boring ETFs has gone up way more in the last three years than Robinhood users. So I think for us, something like Maple is actually a good example. It's like not that sexy. It's, hey, you can earn 15 to 20% yield on your dollar denominated stable coins. That's not going to get retail crypto traders jumping out of bed. But like long term, I think that market is a thousand X bigger than it is for DGENs. I also think there's a lot of markets where crypto is weird. It is like venture and it's also not because these assets can be liquid three, six, 12 months after you invest. And so I think a lot of markets where you kind of have to underwrite an exit strategy, for example, all right, like we're investing in Polkadot based chains because we think the narrative is there's going to be a lot of hype around Polkadot and it's going to be worth a lot more in a year. If you're running a trading strategy where you want to exit in and out of these positions, I think that's fine. But for us, we, we don't. We look at these for, through a venture lens. We kind of never want to sell anything. And so there, I think just the timeline we look at things is different from a lot of funds in the space. How do you think about your competitive advantage in the space? I mean, you've got a couple of funds that have raised just huge amounts of money and lots of others around your size. A lot of it, especially when we started, was really just like driven by our backgrounds and what we had done in the space. A lot of people ask us like, all right, how some of our LPs, for example, want to do more direct investments. All right, like how can I do it? And the feedback we give them is like, there is so much money chasing deals right now. It is so competitive. Unless we can tell a team, you should talk to XYZ asset manager because they can help you with A, B, and C. 
It's not going to happen. You really should just give us money and let us do it. So for us, it's like, hey, we know this Web3 growth stuff really well. You want to launch a token, right? We've worked on 40 of these. We have more data points than most people. It's really leaning into the growth narrative. I think we have a deeper but a narrower focus than most funds. So it's really, that's what we've leaned into. I think now, maybe it wasn't obvious when we raised the first fund, but structurally, every fund has kind of gotten really big and almost priced themselves out of the earliest stages of the market. You look at most crypto funds, call it like 2018, 2019, I think Multicoin, 1KX. Yeah, these guys had like 30 to $50 million. The funds weren't massive. So I think for us, we've intentionally kept our funds small. We like working at the earliest stages. And so I think just structurally, a lot of teams, you know, want to raise one, $1.5 million out of the gate. If you have a $400 million flagship fund, writing that $700,000 lead check in that round, it's just not a good use of your time. And so I think there, that's kind of where we focus differently than a lot of other funds in the space. Now, I know when we first connected, you had put something on Twitter that was, let's just say, a note of caution based on valuation and, and what's been happening in the space. And I'd love your sense of the current state of the market. For background, for probably the 99% of people listening who, who actually don't follow me on, on Twitter, I kind of talked about how I think we were coming off of having a lot of investor conversations and it's really what drove it. But you know, a lot of investors, they, they sort of saw like the flashiest crypto funds and, and Multicoin's first venture fund is probably the best example of this where a lot of managers from the last cycle, I think that fund is 80 to 100x, right? And, and there was actually just like a big coverage of, of Multicoin's first fund in, in this newsletter called The Generalist that kind of went into detail, right? But understandably, you're an LP, you're an asset manager, you're trying to earn yield on your assets and you see a fund that could 100x in three years, you obviously want to chase that, right? Even if like Multicoin's competitors can only generate 20% of that yield, that's like way better than what you're getting in, in most things. So I think you've seen a huge amount of LP interest coming into crypto in the last few years. But I tend to think if your framework for return expectations is based on funds in that last cycle, I think a lot of LPs are, are going to be disappointed. And I, I think there's a few things that drive that. One is everything has been repriced 5, 10, 20x upwards since that cycle. There were DeFi seed rounds that got done at like $5 million network valuations in 2019. Today, that would be 50 and maybe higher. So just definitionally, right, like returns are going to be, say, 5 to 20x lower than they would be from last cycle. These funds have gotten really big, right? And it's just kind of the law of big numbers. It's a lot harder to 100x a billion dollar fund than it is a $20 million one. You know, just the third thing, I think overall, the, the markets are way more competitive. Funds are getting cut back. These things happen a lot quicker. Funds can't do as much diligence. It's just like structurally a much more competitive environment. In terms of what we're seeing now, I think that was probably about two or three months ago that I, I was kind of talking about that. I don't think it's radically different, even though liquid markets, both in equities and crypto, are, are down a decent amount, especially in crypto. There's still a ton of dry powder in these funds. And, you know, these managers didn't raise that money to sit on it, right? It, it's still looking for deals. And so maybe valuations have slid a bit. Maybe these deals are taking a little bit longer to get done. But I don't think the market has like changed meaningfully. So if you think about ultimate value 
however you want to measure that. You've got two different regimes, right? The regime from a couple of years ago, people weren't paying attention. And now you've got a regime where, as you said, like entry multiples are five, 10x what they were. How do you think about calibrating your own expectations when you're making an investment? As on the one hand, maybe returns are just lower and there was this incredible opportunity because people didn't appreciate the space. On the other hand, is it possible that it's just a frothy environment and people are going to lose a lot of money? There's like some famous saying about technology, like you probably overestimate what's going to happen in the next year, but probably underestimate what's going to happen in 10. I think that's kind of how I look at it. I think on one hand, there are like pre-launch games that trade at $8 billion valuations. And so a lot of new games then kind of get comped to that. So you have a lot of two guys who worked at Blizzard and they have like a few slides and they want to launch a blockchain game and that's going out at 100. I don't think the liquid markets will support that. I think a lot of people will lose a lot of money in the short term. Fortunately for us, maybe most of our portfolio is not liquid, so we don't know how that's going to play out. But I think in general, our decision process is like, one, we're very valuation sensitive. We don't have a big fund. We need to be very disciplined. And so I think we're a little bit protected, hopefully. And I think the second is we only underwrite things on like a multi-year timeline. If we buy something private at 20x, it's at 20 million, it's not because we think we can sell it in six months at 100. It's just not our strategy. So I think for funds that take a long-term time horizon, on a 10-year period, we're just in any one. What is the market size of the first globally accessible money market? Compound right now, you can buy for about 1 or 1.5 billion on the open market. Long run, it's probably a lot more than that. So I, I think long term, we remain incredibly bullish. And I think for the few leaders that dominate each category in crypto, like the outcomes are really going to be pretty significant. What do you think you understand from being deep in the space that someone on the outside may not? I think most of it really comes down to like pattern matching. So I think maybe a good example is. There's so much happening in crypto. These markets are really meme-driven. Like It's very, very hard to break out and find attention, especially because the market is still pretty defined. If you're building a DeFi product, you're realistically going after the million DeFi users. You're probably not going to bring more users in. So I think just as an example, we've seen a lot of more efficient versions of a lot of these DeFi protocols, and very few of them have gone anywhere. Because once these teams have a narrative, once they have people talking about them on Twitter, it's just very hard to like come in and break out beyond that, even if you are doing something a little bit better. So I think they're just like under, we spend a lot of time thinking about what moats teams have, what's their go-to-market strategy. And, you know, the, the truth is like very few of these projects can ever break out. So I, I think really anything we know is, is kind of just based on what we've seen and pattern matching. I think also some of that is just like, it's very subjective. It's human judgment. I saw a lot of people leave crypto during the last winter. I tried to get jobs out of crypto during the last winter. It sucked. It really, you know, imagine going to like meet up with some of your friends at a bachelor party or birthday. And it's kind of like, oh, you're still doing that crypto thing, right? Like, didn't it die in 2018? That's really hard. It definitely wasn't lucrative then. So I think the other thing for us is someone who's like, read about NFTs three months ago and thinks it's really cool and comes in and have, has kind of only experienced this like very hyped market. 
for some number of founders, just intuitively, it's cool that you're interested in this, but I don't know that you're going to be here in a year or two doing this if, if the markets slide. You mentioned before defining a moat. What does a moat or a defensible moat mean in this space? It's a good question. I think in general, it's really hard. You kind of think about what companies have relied on historically, and none of that really works in crypto, right? Imagine you're building a marketplace in Web3, let's say like your compound. It is incredibly easy for anyone to pull money off of your platform. Actually, all they need to do is literally click a button in a wallet. And that money is very mercenary. So there's not really any user lock-in. Then you think about like a brand marketing perspective, talking to your users, building loyalty. Well, actually, you don't know who any of your users are. You just have a list of 100,000 wallets that have interacted with your smart contracts, and you have no way to contact those users. So every growth assumption that Web2 businesses have, have used to grow is breaks in Web3. So then like, all right, where are the modes? I think one is community. What does community mean? These are kind of user-owned networks, right? If you own one comp token, you are a small but owner of comp, but you own a bit of the network. You can vote on governance decisions. And these things are run really openly. There's a compound discord. I bet you could like go in there and talk to the core team pretty quickly. So we tend to think of community as kind of giving leverage to the core team and everything they do. If you have a really engaged community, anything the core team is announcing, they're going to help like get it out on Twitter and, and just post there. They're probably a little bit less mercenary in terms of selling their tokens and moving their money, right? If you know, the core team is like hosting community calls every week and they really feel like they're kind of engaged and invested in what they're doing, then that's awesome and they feel engaged. And also, you know, a lot of these teams are not run like a corporation. There's a lot of people working part time. And so you can actually like get the community to help. So I think community is a big one. I think integrations is, is another big thing. You kind of think about who owns the customer relationship in crypto and it's generally wallets. MetaMask is probably, they control the user interface for 80% of people interacting with Ethereum. So it's okay, like if you were like a liquidity protocol, can you get plugged into MetaMask? Can you get plugged into the big wallets? DeFi is composable. All of these protocols can plug into one another. So can you build the relationships with other protocols where either they're paying you for your liquidity or you're able to like tap into theirs? And so I think the ability to execute on BD and just go to market strategy is, is really important. Tokens can be a moat. Like I think if you can figure out some pretty novel token economics and just a way to lock people in, whether it's through subsidizing yield, that can also be a meaningful moat, but that one is a little bit harder to sustain long-term. Hi, Regan. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a couple of fun closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work, family, and crypto? In the winter, skiing, and then otherwise biking. What is your biggest pet peeve? I think it's unnecessary complexity. I think a lot of people in the crypto love to reinvent the wheel and love to describe these things in just like pretty complex language. And it's generally necessary. And I think a pretty good sign that someone's like full of BS. <laughs> Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? My parents and like my family more broadly, I was fortunate to grow up in a pretty like entrepreneurial environment. And there was never really any pressure to go be a, a doctor or some kind of like clear cut path. And I, I think that gave me a bit more freedom to explore. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? If you were going to do anything, like you should do it right and you should do it really well. 
venture the path here like it really requires a lot of you need to be self-motivated you like your lp investors are not looking over your shoulder drilling you each week on what you're doing we need to get it every day and like just leave it all out on the court in terms of kind of what we do and if you're not really self-motivated i think it's hard to do that this one's a little early for you but what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a bunch earlier in your life I think it's really just like how much more output matters than input. I think definitely, especially when I was younger, just like being at the office on weekends because I felt like it's what I should do when I probably would have been a lot more productive if I was just having fun and, you know, was a bit more focused during the week. It took me a long time to learn that. And there were a lot of wasted hours sitting in the office. Great. Well, Regan, really appreciate your insights. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.